I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. As employers and schools promote diversity, equity, and inclusivity initiatives, many of us still grapple with saying the right thing or worry about the repercussions of saying the wrong thing. For the vast run of us, we are not sort of terrible offenders. More often than not, we're people of goodwill who, like all human beings, make mistakes, including in the domain of diversity and inclusion. And when we make those kind of honest mistakes, I think it's a really terrible idea to say, if you make a single mistake, you're going to be ostracized or canceled. And later, tips and techniques for those difficult and awkward conversations. Write down or think about three things that you like or affirm about yourself or three values that you have before you go into the conversation. These conversations are hard. We wouldn't push you out to run a marathon without feeding you first, so feed yourself psychologically. Navigating the world of DEI with NYU professor Kenji Yoshino. That's coming up on Life Examined. Over the last several years, celebrities from Scarlett Johansson and J.K. Rowling to comedians Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle have all found themselves pushing back or not against claims of cultural insensitivity. Cancel culture, literally canceling, shaming, or ostracizing someone for something they say or did, has gone from high-profile celebrity incidents to Main Street. Over a short space of time, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs have transformed the landscape and created new avenues to consider our interactions and biases towards one another. Yet however well-meaning, these initiatives are not always perfect— They leave many scared to talk about difficult issues, uncertain about saying the wrong thing, and as a result, many stay silent for fear of offending. In his latest book called Say the Right Thing, NYU law professor Kenji Yoshino shines a light on these challenges and argues that many current DEI initiatives are falling flat. Rather than fostering a safe atmosphere of acceptance to learn and grow, they shame and judge. Kenji Yoshino is Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law and the director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Kenji Yoshino, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. I'd love to get a little bit of your background in this subject. I mean, you talk very personally in this book about growing up as a gay man um, and in the closet for years, and I'm sure you you wrestled with language, with the culture we live in, but how would you say that informed the idea behind this new book, Say the Right Thing? Yes, yeah, so I think that uh, you're hitting the nail on the head there, and that uh, I think that language has always been important to me, not just uh, with regard to the silence of the closet, but also as... Uh, the child of immigrants from Japan watching my parents struggle with language, I really did think that uh, learning English uh, and mastering English was really the royal road to uh, inclusion and assimilation in American society. So, uh, and independently of that, I would say, you know, of any kind of external felt need, I just did have a passion for language, was a English literature major undergrad and still teach law and literature to this day. So, uh, language has always been critically important to me. But as you say, you know, this came to a head in my life when uh, I was coming out to people as a gay man. Uh, I, for today's times, perhaps late in life, you know, after I graduated from college. And one of the things that we say in the book is that, because uh, my co-author is also gay, is that we really do think that our faith in conversations is shaped by that experience. Because if you have something that you need to come out to, a large swath of people about, and you know that it could dramatically, you know, change their view of you. Mm. Uh, you remember every single one of those conversations because you prepare for them, you dread them, you're hopeful about them. And to this day, you know, now, you know, half a lifetime later, I do remember every single one of the conversations I had with significant people in my life. And whether they went really well or really poorly, Uh, They were immensely consequential in the way they shaped uh, my relationships and my life going forward from that moment. So I think we often get asked in this book, like, you know, why is it say the right thing? Why isn't it do the right thing? Why do you have so much faith in conversations when it seems like we're at each other's throats and maybe this is a time not to empathize with other people and converse with them politely, but rather to smite them? And I think our answers are analytic, to be sure, but they're also deeply personal, uh, remembering how transformative individual conversations were in our lives. Mm. Do you remember, for example, conversations that went, you know, really right and some that went really wrong and how language really factored into those? 
So I think when I think about the conversations in particular that went really right, I do think that they are threaded through with one commonality, which is how other regarding they were, you know, that the listener was really curious and attentive and and open and didn't make it about them, but were able to be there for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's one of the things that, you know, I try to remind myself of when I am now, as I more often am now that I'm, you know, an adult and tenured and getting on in years, you know, I usually am the more senior person in the conversation. So I'm there as the ally. And I try to remember, you know, how important it was to kind of decenter myself, you know, and to, or, or rather how important it was that other people decentered themselves and how important it is for me to not make a conversation about me, not to, you know, take it personally, to have the resilience and curiosity to make sure that, I'm really hearing what the other person is trying to say rather than making assumptions or having my own reactions overpower, you know, the importance of uh, listening to them and what they have to say. Mm. And I want to come back to that because I know that one of the big tenets in this is, is to remain in a place of curiosity in a conversation in which we might feel uncomfortable. But, but first, I, I'd love for you to kind of give a, a general sense of how you feel the landscape is shaping up in terms of having conversations about identity. There was, there was something that kind of made me laugh in this. You, you referenced an article in The Economist, and that article suggests the 12 most terrifying words in the English language are, quote, I'm from Human Resources, and I'm here to organize a diversity workshop, unquote. I, it made me smile. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have come across this, but, but maybe using that as a launching board, I mean, wh- where are we right now? Yeah, I think we're in a not great place uh, on these issues. Uh, I'm actually hopeful about the general direction of I think that we are much more conscious and sensitive of difference. But I think what we are experiencing is that we are achieving those gains at the cost of experiencing a lot of discomfort. So one of my favorite scholars, Jennifer Richardson, a psychologist at Yale, talks about the democratization of discomfort. So it used to be that, you know, if there was discomfort, as there always was in these conversations across identity, it was always borne by the subordinated person in the conversation. So Mm -hmm. if it was a conversation about race between a white person, a person of color, the person of color would bear the discomfort. If I were having a conversation with a woman about gender issues, if I said something untoward, then the woman in the conversation would be responsible for managing that. And What Richardson says is we're now experiencing the democratization of that discomfort such that it's felt on both sides. And the dominant side of the conversation is feeling, oh, you know, what if I say the wrong thing and I get canceled? So Mm. I was recently talking to a CEO who was saying, like, why am I so uncomfortable, right, in these conversations? And we tried to get him to reframe the question to ask himself, why have I been so comfortable in these conversations until now? Because the discomfort has always been there, it's just been borne by the other side. And so the discomfort that we're feeling when we're on the dominant side of these conversations is just the democratization of discomfort. But all that said, that doesn't mean that it's fun or easy. And, you know, many diversity inclusion workshops can be, you know, and I say this as somebody who really believes in the project, and maybe precisely because I believe in the project of diversity inclusion, but a lot of the workshops can be cringeworthy or awful or off-putting or just, you know, land in a terrible way. And so I get that. Um, and so I, I think the trick of this book and what we were trying to do in the book was to say, is there a kind of shame-free, practical, sort of rigorous, you know, smart way of approaching these conversations where we can actually coach people past that fear. Hmm. Because when you say, according to that economist thing, it's a kiss and a slap, right? I mean, it brings a chuckle, but it also brings a tear in a way, right? That um, the 12 most scary words are like, I'm here from human resources and I'm here to lead a diversity workshop. Yes, you know, that's, you know, I understand why you laughed, I laughed too. But I think that there's also the sense of like, why should we dread this? Why should this occasion like eye rolling or fear Right. When what we're really trying to do is something that I think the vast majority of Americans really believe in, which is, you know, mutual understanding, you know, compassion for people who are not like ourselves. You know, this idea that we're trying to get along in a very pluralistic society, right, that we all want to get better at this. It's just that we've encountered so many poor versions of this training uh, and it's an inherently uncomfortable subject that, um 
we sort of cringe when we hear someone say, you know, oh, I want to be doing a training. Right. You use the word shame, which I think is a really, it's a really powerful emotion. And it's something that factors into these conversations. The fact that someone could be shamed or that they'd have to sit with shame if they say the wrong thing. Or can you expand on that word? Because I think it's something that really kind of puts people in, in a place of fear and silence and maybe not wanting to engage. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And a lot of what we don't like about the cancel culture, you know, that gets talked about all the time is that uh, it's so indiscriminately shaming and that it offers no practical tools, which I actually think are related to each other, because Mm. when you're shamed, you often feel like you, you can't improve. And what we're trying to move towards is something that we call coaching culture, right? That so it transfers like shame into you know something that is still might sound a little scary, but we think is more benign, which is guilt, right? Uh, and then gives people practical tools to get better. So you know, Brene Brown in one of her books you know, draws this lovely distinction in between shame and guilt, where she says shame is not a useful emotion uh, because it corrodes the very part of ourselves that thinks that we can get better. And she says guilt is still an uncomfortable emotion, but it's actually quite a productive uh, emotion because if we think like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, you know, but then you say, but I can get better. You know, next time I won't say that. I'll, I'll, I can change my behavior. I can improve, right? I can grow. Uh, then it's actually a really useful thing. So one of the mantras that we sort of utter throughout the book is like, this is an utterly shame-free guide and we all make mistakes in this domain and we will be the last people to shame you. We're here to coach you, not to shame you. Mm. So how then do you feel about where we are with something like cancel culture? I mean, what are your thoughts, whether it's been productive, counterproductive? Um, I'm curious. Yeah. So productive in a really narrow way. So I think that we have these break glass moments like the murder of George Floyd or, you know, egregious other, you know, acts that lead to things like the Me Too movement, you know, Harvey Weinstein, you know, comes to mind where, you know, cancellation seems like, you know, completely appropriate. And it just seems like this is consequence culture rather than, you know, cancel culture per se. But beyond that, for the vast supermajority of people and the vast supermajority of instances, I think that, you know, cancel culture is the kind of elephant gun that blows away a lot of mice. Because, you know, for the vast run of us, we are not sort of terrible offenders. We are not people who have no interest in getting better. Uh, More often than not, we're people of goodwill uh, who, like all human beings, make mistakes, including in the domain of diversity and inclusion. And when we make those kind of honest mistakes, I think it's a really terrible idea to say, we're going to hold you to this really high standard. But if you make a single mistake, you know, you're going to be ostracized or canceled. So I always think about this according to, you know, what Dolly Chug, you know, my colleague here at NYU calls the 20-60-20 rule, where 20% are like diehard champions of diversity and inclusion, like me and my co-author. You know, 20% of people are just ideologically opposed, as we see not all, but many sort of conservatives in this country uh, saying, right? So if you look at the Ron DeSantis's or the Sarah Huckabee Sanders's of the world, they say there's normal and there's crazy. Right. And so we're both calling, you know, as extremes to the center of the room, the kind of movable 60 percent of people who are in the middle. So there's, you know, the champion of DNI, 20 percent. There's the opponent of DNI, 20 percent. And then most of the country is in the middle, as I observe it, in that 60 percent. And Chuck herself sort of endorses this view of things. Hmm. And so if we're calling from other sides of the room and you know, we're trying to persuade people in the middle of the room to come to our side rather than the other person's side. Like, what's our value proposition? So I think the value proposition of Champions of DNI has always been, you want to be a better person, like grow, like, you know, be a good citizen, be a good ally, right? In an increasingly diverse society, in a society that in some ways has always been diverse, but we're all much more conscious of how diverse it's always been, right? But if In addition to that, what we say is, and by the way, if you don't meet our high standards of what it means to be a good person, you're canceled, then I think it becomes really attractive to go to the other side, right? I can see the appeal of the right-wing voice that says, you know, well, look, you know, this, you know, the other side, Kenji's being ridiculous, so come over to our side and say whatever you want, um, and far from canceling you, we'll embrace you, we'll have your back, and if other people criticize you, we'll tell them that they're crazy, right? Uh, So... 
I think our value proposition has to change a little bit uh, from cancel culture, or maybe a lot from cancel culture to coaching culture. And I think it's like we don't surrender the standard. The standard is still really high. We want to all be better people. But, you know, if you make a mistake and you're still a person of goodwill who wants to get better, then we're definitely not going to cancel you. We're not going to shame you. And we're going to give you affirmative tools to get better. So, as you know, the book arrays itself along seven principles. And each of those principles is just an easy tool um, that you can absorb very quickly and put into effect immediately uh, to actually grow yourself, you know, along this maturity curve of being a better ally, you know, standing up more for DNI. And it's really that approach, I think, that's going to persuade the person in the middle to come over to the side of DNI rather than to become a skeptic or an opponent of it. Mm-hmm. What's an example of how these conversations go like really wrong? Um, just so we can kind of get into this a little bit. Um, wh- where do you see this breaking down all the time? Yeah, it's a great question. And we actually open with this. So we open with the hypothetical of, let's say you're a white guy, right? And you have a good friend, uh, we call him Amir, who's a person of color, and he keeps not coming to your holiday parties. And at first you think, oh, well, he's a busy guy, but he seems to be perfectly happy hanging out with you one-on-one. And so finally, you kind of uh, screw up your courage and you say, is something going on that you don't come to these events? And then he says back to you, well, you know, I don't feel like I belong, you know, at your parties because they're so homogeneous uh, and they're so sort of white. And, you know, I just feel like uh, I don't really enjoy myself and I don't feel like I, I fit in there, right? So if you get that kind of a comment, what is your reaction most likely to be? And in our experience, it's a very human reaction to be flooded with self-threat. This is someone who you care about who's mm-hmm. saying there's a kind of racialized, you know, biased dimension of the way you conduct yourself and that your friends are all white or something like that, right? So how do we react? Do we have the conversation in a thoughtful, sensible, compassionate way uh, in the way that you know, folks did on the good side, you know, when I came out to them and they were kind to me and they were open, even though what I had to say wasn't necessarily easy or familiar to them. Well, generally, no, right? Generally, we're so flooded with self-threat that we engage in what we call ADDA behaviors, which is avoid, deflect, deny, or attack. So avoid would be, I got to get out of here, right? So I'm going to say, like, look at the time, I got to go to a meeting. Uh, deflect is, you know, channel switching, right? Of saying like, oh, I'm going to turn the channel to something that I'm more comfortable talking about. So uh, you might say something like, you know, I get that your complaint might have some validity here, but I don't really appreciate the tone in which you framed it. So uh, the famous tone policing response of like, I'm going to shift to how you frame something rather than what you said, because, you know, I'm, I'm firmer ground there. You could also deny by saying, you know, how dare you say that about me? Like, if I look back over my past five, you know, holiday parties, there are lots of people of color there, you know, uh, how dare you call me a racist? And then attack is like carrying war into, you know, your conversation partner's camp and saying, you know, you're so thin skinned. Why are you such a snowflake? Are you saying that, you know, somebody has to be a person of color for you to get along with? You know, that in itself is racist. Why do you make everything about race? That Mm -hmm. kind of comment. So all of these, I hope, are familiar to listeners. You know, I certainly am not above any of this. I've had conversations like uh, across uh, axes of identity where I've been on the listening side and I have gone to the ADDA behaviors. But before we sort of can do anything, we have to sort of look at ourselves and understand the ways in which these can be slow motion car crashes, right? And that we have to look back on the conversations that we've had and be honest about the fact that we do this all the time, right? And we need to do better if we want the conversations to go better. Mm. It's funny. I mean, as you say that, I, I, I was just reflecting on it myself. Like, what is this human psychological part of us that wants to immediately kind of reject any ways in which we could be at fault in this? Because I think it, you know, it, it does bring up that feeling of shame. Or as you said, I think maybe for the 60% in their minds, they think they're doing the right stuff. Right. They they don't think of themselves as somebody who would ostracize or create an exclusive environment. So I'm just kind of sitting with that that impulse in us that doesn't want to accept that that really does sit in discomfort there. I really appreciate that comment, Jonathan. I think that's such an important thing to say, because if you were or I were to make a mistake in constitutional law, which is, you know, what I teach every day here at the law school, 
I, I think we would feel really differently about it. I think we would mm -hmm. be like, okay, I made a mistake, but you know, big deal. You know, it's something I did. Whereas if we make a mistake in a conversation about race uh, or gender or any of these, you know, identity um, uh, topics, then suddenly it's not about what we did. It's about who we are. You know, mm -hmm. the implicit in I don't go to your holiday parties because they're so unrelentingly white is really a comment that's tantamount to saying you're a racist or you're a bigot or you're you know, prejudiced in some way. So it's not about what you did so much as it is going to the core of who you are as yeah. a moral human being. Right. So I think that's a difference. You know, guilt is usually about what we've done and shame is about who we are. And so identity conversations have a tendency to trigger even dominant um, side groups right, into feeling deep, deep shame uh, because they experience it, whether it's intended in that way or not, as not being about what they've done, but about who they are, and therefore uh, not about uh, stimulating their guilt, but about stimulating their shame. Mm, that's really interesting. So let's kind of tease this out a little bit further. I mean, how, how in a sense, did, does someone kind of take their, their ego and sense of, you know, who they are off the table? I mean, I know that might sound obvious or easy, but I don't think it is. Like, what... What, what is the next step in, in saying, okay, my normal reaction is this, but where do I go from there that's more constructive? Exactly. So the first thing that we say is before you can have anything else, you need to have tools to build your own resilience. Uh, because without that, the identity threat is going to be so great that uh, you're going to be so fearful that you can't have curiosity, which is the other cardinal virtue, as we've discussed at these uh, conversation. So how do you build that resilience? Well, part of it is, you know, you adopt that, you know, growth mindset, you know, you believe that you can change. And that can be as simple as reframing it as not, you know, I'm not good at talking about race, or I'm not good at using the right pronouns to, you know, I'm not good at talking about race, comma, yet, you know, I'm not good at talking or using the right pronouns, comma, yet. So the classic growth mindset strategies that you know my son has to use in his math class, he's not allowed to say, I'm not good at math. He has to say, I'm not good at math, comma, yet, because his teachers are trying to coach him to sit, shift over from the fixed mindset, which is I either have it or I don't, to the growth mindset, which is I don't have it now, right? But you know I could have it later, right? So that's, you know I think, one key uh, component of this. Another set of strategies is about self-affirmation. So as hokey as this sounds, you know, um, Robert Livingston, the psychologist says, again, he himself says as hokey as this sounds, you know, um, write down or think about three things that you like or affirm about yourself for three values that you have before you go into the conversation. Because he says, these conversations are hard, right? So there is some innate discomfort. We wouldn't push you out to run a marathon without feeding you first. So. Uh, feed yourself psychologically, right, before you go into one of these conversations. And funnily enough, the three things that you write down or think about don't have to have anything to do with diversity or inclusion, right? In fact, some say it's better if they don't have anything to do with that. So just saying like, you know, I'm a good husband or I'm a really good lawyer, right, is a really good, you know, thing to say to yourself before you go into these conversations. Because what happens when you're flooded with self-threat is that you don't really have your footing. And so if you build up those bulwarks in advance of those hits to your self-esteem, then you're much more likely to be able to sort of say, okay, you know, I took a hit there, but you know, I'm not down, you know, mm. I can weather it, you know, I just need to uh, stay the course. It's not just all about like talking to yourself. It's also about relying on other people. Like another key thing that we say about building resilience is that, you know, allies need allies. So a lot of times people say like, oh, allyship fatigue is just you know, so lame or cringeworthy because I guess I shouldn't say lame because that's ableist, but it's so sort of mm. cringeworthy because um, it's it's something that, you know, is a privileged person's way of saying I'm suffering when the affected person is suffering so much more. But I want to push back against that and say, like, if you get tired as an ally, you know, I know I get tired as an ally. It's really important that you have a community of people who's gonna, who are going to support you, right? So it's really important as part of your resilience strategy to say, okay, I know that I'm not supposed to go to the affected person and cry on their shoulder because I'm supposed to be helping them. But I can always help, you know, ask, you know, as Susan Silk says in her famous ring theory, I can go to other people who are further out from the epicenter of the crisis than either the affected person or I am. 
and I can actually cry on their shoulders and they can actually help me uh, build my own resilience when my tendency is to sort of have a knee-jerk reaction that's unproductive or unhelpful. Yeah, and, I, and I'm still, you know, sitting with that idea of, of coming to this with some self-affirmations. And I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I think all of this kind of speaks to a natural, almost polarizing way in which humans think. And so when we're being attacked in one part of us, we think all of us is being attacked in that sense. Like in the case of Amir here, Amir's, Amir might still like the other person or whoever it is in this case, the, you know, the colleague, but it's just saying in this one circumstance, I, I maybe don't feel as comfortable. And I think we have to be able to sit with nuance and with the idea that these are not all, all or nothing statements that are kind of, you know, being flame thrown at our hearts and our souls in a sense. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? I totally do. And I think that's exactly right. And we say uh, in another portion of the resilience chapter that, you know, I'm delighted that you're leading us to um, make sure that you right size the feedback that you're hearing. Hmm. Because, you know, Sheila Heen and Doug Stone say in their book, thanks for the feedback, that even outside of diversity and inclusion context, we as human beings tend not to hear negative feedback very well. So you might say to me, oh, Kenji, you know, uh, your audio game sucks, right? You know, and I might think like, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person. I'm not a good professional. Like, I'm not good at media, what have you, right? Uh, and so I tend to catastrophize and make it all or nothing, right? If Jonathan just, you know, thinks I'm a terrible human being. Right. Uh, whereas what you might be trying to say is I totally respect you as a professional. And then, you know, precisely because I respect you, not in spite of that, right? I want you to get better, right? So, you know, presumably you're quite right about Amir, right? Why is Amir bothering to sit down and have this conversation with you? Why is he bothering to share this concern with you if he doesn't want the friendship to survive and grow stronger because of that, right? So he's giving you the gift of candor, right? And that, you know, exchange, which suggests that he does respect you. But all of us as human beings, Heen and Stone say, you know, have a tendency to hear, right? You know, oh, there's a racialized dimension to one thing that you're doing to you're irredeemably and categorically a racist and you're a terrible person. I want nothing to do with you, right? And so I think that that is a really important strategy, right? That you're leading me to, which is to right-size the feedback, what they call hearing the feedback at actual size, of saying, what is this person actually saying to me mm. uh, versus what, you know, how am I reacting or, you know, what are the demons in my head telling me, right, that they have said. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's interesting. And I, I want to jump also to a part of this book. I mean, we could apply it to the story with Amir or others, but the role of apology, which is a very sensitive one. I mean, I think some people are maybe better at apologizing than other, but you, you really talk about when it's necessary and what's the right language to use in that case. Can, can you tell us a bit about that section? Yeah. So the first thing is, you know, to make sure that you can apologize authentically, that you genuinely are remorseful, right? Because I can imagine the you know, person who is being addressed by Amir feeling like that is like wildly unfair. And so we also say in the book, and there's a separate chapter on disagreement, we'd much rather have you disagree respectfully than to apologize inauthentically. Hmm. So the kind of threshold question, as we lawyers like to say, is whether or not you feel like you genuinely owe Amir an apology. And if right. you don't, please don't apologize, right? Instead, like have the disagreement, but respectfully rather than ref reflexively. Right? And, and actually, can we stay right there for a second? I mean, this is this is a really interesting case that I think there is a question, and, and I'll let you get to it in a second, but like when does someone, let's say, in a dominant culture owe someone like Amir an apology, right? Like, what, what, what are the terms in which that feels necessary or morally correct? So I'd love to even get to that at some point, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's a really um, important and deep question. But, you know, I'll begin by just saying, you know, at the very retail level, you know, at the very intimate level, I think a lot of it has to do with whether or not you think the criticism is fair or not. And mm. it may be that you need to reflect on that. So I know if I got a criticism like that, that, you know, I would want to say, like, you know, I take that on board. Like, I, um, to be honest, like, that makes me, you know, incredibly sort of guilty or fearful. Uh, I'm probably not going to bring my best self, right, to this conversation right now. So can I take an off-ramp? Right. And can we pick it up, you know, uh, at some later time? And the difference between that and sort of reflexive avoidance of look at the time I have the meeting to go to is that you're making it really clear 
that you're not avoiding in the sense of just trying to shut down the conversation as quickly as possible. You're saying, I'm not bringing you know, my best self to the conversation, and so therefore let me revisit this when I can do it in a more thoughtful way. Because I don't think any of us have the capacity to respond on the fly right, to a comment mm. like that. I think that it would always benefit us to have a little bit more time to reflect on whether or not we think the comment is fair right, or not. And if we don't think it's fair, then you know, there are ways that we talk about in the disagreement chapter uh, to address it. But if we reflect on it and we do genuinely feel remorseful about that and we want to offer an apology, the apology chapter is really one of my favorites, if not my favorite uh, overall in the book, because we started out really nervous about it because we thought, oh, like, we're going to send out a bunch of research assistants on it. We're going to do a lot of reading ourselves, but we're not going to be able to find, you know, here are like the four elements of a successful apology because mm -hmm. these are such kind of nuanced uh, human interactions that uh, it's not going to be susceptible to that kind of uh, box sticking or, you know, element, you know, kind of analysis that uh, lawyers love. But actually, you know, we scoured, you know, the philosophy of apologies, the social science of apologies, pop culture and apologies. And it really does seem to reduce to four elements, which we call the four R's of apology of uh, recognition, responsibility, remorse and redress. Right. So the first would be sort of recognizing the harm. Right. So oftentimes we say things like, if I did that, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry if you feel that way. And yeah. that's absolute non-recognition. Right. That if I'm really unsure if I've done something wrong, then I should ask more questions to figure out what exactly I've done. If I'm sure, but I'm just trying to protect myself in the ways that we've been discussing earlier, then I should just know that, you know, it's a very human impulse to want to protect yourself in an apology and hedge it. But then you're actually un unlikely to get what you want, because what you're trying to do is to apologize authentically while protecting yourself from the other person piling on or exacting too much from you. Um, or shaming you. Um, but if you give a kind of if-pology, as we call it, then you're unlikely to be seen as authentic and you're also unlikely to, you know, protect yourself because soon you'll have to be apologizing for the uh, inappropriate apology. Right? Mm. And the second element is responsibility. And, you know, if the word if is a good byword for failing the kind of element of recognition, then the word but is the kind of danger word that we want people to look out for with regard to responsibility. So remember when Roseanne Barr said, you know, after tweeting out a racist comment, I'm sorry, comma, but it was two in the morning and I was ambient tweeting, right? Uh -huh, so right. that kind of, you know, use of the word but, you know, really undermines everything that came before it, right? So, you know, Sanofi actually issued another tweet that said racism is not a side effect of any of our medications that are made for Yeah, you just need to be really careful, right, about that, of saying, you know, look, you know, I want to protect myself, but like, if I use the word but, I'm just, uh, you know, vitiating the apology by not taking responsibility. So there's a lot to be said for, I'm sorry, period, there's no excuse, period, right? Mm -hmm. If you need something to say, you know, there's no excuse, it's a perfectly fine thing to say. And then remorse is less about forms of words than it is about general behavioral or contextual factors. So I think about Mario Batali giving an apology after he was uh, accused of sexual assault. And he gave a not great, but sort of passable apology. But then as a postscript to the apology, he added a recipe for cinnamon rolls. And hmm. when I looked at that, I was like, I just don't believe any of this, right? Looking at the entire context. Uh, so I don't believe that you're feeling remorse. And that's obviously a key component. And the last one might be the least intuitive, which is redress, because I think that we often think that uh, apologies are enough and that they close the books on something. But apologies are at their best, the end of something, but they're also the beginning of something else, which is a code of conduct that is different from the code of conduct that you're apologizing for. So if I apologize to you, Jonathan, I do the same thing next week, then that's really gonna undermine the apology. So I'm really pledging to you that I understand that I can't talk my way out of something that I've acted my way into and that my future course of conduct is going to be different and better. Mm, yeah. I, and there's a, there's a really great example in this chapter uh, about Frank Azaria, who apologized for voicing the role of Apu in The Simpsons. Can, can you mention that quickly? Yeah, I love this because initially he, you know, uh, was definitely engaging in 
uh, ADDA, avoid deflecting eye attack kind of behavior where he said, like, look, this is just comedy, you know, like, you know, you're too thin-skinned, you know, have a sense of humor kind of thing. Uh, and then he, you know, had the capacity to be resilient enough and curious enough to hear the impact of his portrayal of this, you know, South Asian Indian character on The Simpsons. And many people of South Asian descent were saying to him, like, this is, you know, we're kids, we all watch The Simpsons. Um, I'm of South Asian descent, and because of Apu, um, people mock me, they bully me. You know, Apu is incredibly stereotypical uh, in that he has a stereotypical South Asian Indian accent. You know, he has, uh, he's married and has, you know, tons and tons of children, and he runs a convenience store. And any stereotype that people have about, you know, South Asians, he fulfills it. Uh, and so people are just using this as a kind of club to bludgeon me with. And at the end, you know, Azari really took it on board and he hit all four of these elements where he said, you know, I've talked to all these children and they've convinced me that, you know, I've really, really harmed them. So I want to acknowledge that and take full responsibility for that. You know, I didn't see what I was doing before, but now I do. And, you know, there's no excuse for what I did. And then in the end, with regard to redress, he realized that, you know, the apology without more action uh, would just be empty words. So he says, I quit. He said, I quit. You know, I'm not going to portray this character anymore because uh, it has hurt so many people. Mm, wow. So I just think that's such a powerful, you know, uh, story, right? Where he was able to move from being one kind of person to move, moving to be another kind of person. So it's like a beautiful kind of growth mindset kind of story. If you're just joining us, my guest is Kenji Yoshino, professor of law at NYU, and we're discussing his new book about DEI called Say the Right Thing. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard NYU law professor Kenji Yoshino describe the right way to apologize and how actor Hank Azaria stopped voicing his Simpsons character Apu after discovering how his vocal stereotyping had impacted the South Asian community. As a gay man, Kenji Yoshino also experienced the discomfort and awkwardness of difficult conversations when he came out and the profound effect they had when they went well. Yoshino says avoiding these types of conversations in the long run isn't helpful in changing our mindset. We're all human, and mistakes are normal, Yoshino says. But the way to counter those mistakes is to, quote, give you affirmative tools to get better at having them. Let's get back to the conversation. You mentioned also a little bit earlier about the importance of, I think, moving to something called a, a growth mindset here. And you used a, a great example of, I believe, your son who was learning math. Was that right? And... Um, I, why do you think that's an effective approach to this? Because I, I think that, that there's something that can be, you know, quite quite healing about taking that that road. Yeah. So uh, the growth mindset, you know, goes back to uh, Carol Dweck, the psychologist at Stanford's uh, scholarship, and she distinguishes between uh, so-called growth mindset and so-called fixed mindset. So the growth mindset is where I think that, you know, my capabilities are susceptible to being expanded. And the fixed mindset is I either have it or I don't. So mm -hmm. if I don't have this capability, then uh, my capabilities are immutable. So I'm just out of luck. And in every domain of learning that she studied, she discovered that regardless of where people started, you know, uh, the growth mindset would always beat out the fixed mindset over time. So even if like, I had some kind of innate ability and I came in at a, a higher starting point than you did on something, Jonathan. Mm. If you adopted a growth mindset to that endeavor and I retained a fixed mindset, you would lap me at some point, right? Yeah. Because I would run into obstacles and I would be defeated by them. And you would just think like, okay, how can I grow from this? So she studied this across domains as different as, you know, academia to business to athletics and found out that growth mindset beat out the fixed mindset in every one of those domains. And it's so permeated kind of learning theory to the point where, as you said, you know, my 10-year-old son is not 
um, told, is told not to say, you know, I'm not good at math. He's told to say, I'm not good at math, comma, yet. To move him from the fixed mindset, I'm not good at this, to the growth mindset, you're not good at it now, but you could be better at it, you know, tomorrow yeah. or, or in the future. Yeah. And the thing that's so funny about diversity and inclusion conversations, and here again, you know, my colleague Dolly Chug, you know, at um, NYU is, is brilliant on this, is that she says like, you know, we believe in the growth mindset in every other domain of learning, but when it comes to diversity and inclusion conversations, we throw it out the window. And she again ascribes this to the identity threat that we feel in these conversations where, again, if I make a mistake in some other domain, it's just a mistake. But if I mis make a mistake in DNI, it goes to who I am as a moral human being. And mm -hmm. so I kind of freeze into uh, the fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. So the point here is to say, you know, again, adopt the growth mindset, you know, comma, yet strategy. You can adopt other growth mindset strategies, like comparing yourself to yourself rather than yourself to other people. So yeah. another piece of growth mindset advice is if I misgender a colleague, say, right, I shouldn't say, oh, Jonathan is so much better at this than I am. He never would have made that mistake. You know, I'm a terrible person. You know, I'm never going to get these pronouns right. But rather to say, you know, how do I compare myself to myself right, a year ago? And if I'm a person of goodwill who's trying hard at this, then it's quite likely that even if I made a mistake today, like I'm making fewer of them than I was a year ago, and that will again stimulate my growth mindset. It's funny you mentioned that one example, and I can speak personally here. You know, I, I have made mistakes with gender pronouns or gender neutral pronouns. The they pronoun in particular has, has been really challenging for me, not because I have any issue personally with it, but just the way that my brain works grammatically has, it's taken a shift. And it's in, I, if I use the mindset that you've talking about, I think I have gotten better and yet I still make mistakes and I feel horrible about it every single time when the people next to me nail it every, every single time around me. So I'm just sitting with that myself and saying, okay, maybe I have to be easier on myself as I, as I try to do better, you know, throughout the months and years, I suppose. I so appreciate that. And I will say that I have um, shamelessly uh, stolen from Chug um, the strategy of sometimes opening up my classes by saying, here's a day in the life of a professor. You know, this professor misgendered a trans colleague. This professor, you know, confused two people of the same ethnic group with each other and called them repeatedly by each other's names. Mm. You know, this professor, you know, had a syllabus that was loaded towards, you know, straight white man without any kind of justification for why that needed to be the case, or this professor laughed at inappropriate jokes. And you see where this is going, Jonathan, where mm. like the next slide is, and that professor was me, right? So I think it's really important for us all to be able to say, we all make mistakes in this area. Like it's not a good learning practice for people to say, I have it all sewn up, and so I'm here to guide you. Because first of all, it bears no relationship to the truth. Like we're all gonna make mistakes in this area. And second of all, it's like not a gift to other people to say, I'm perfect at this and, and you're not. It's much better to say, I like you make mistakes, we're all on this journey. So the final thing that I'll quote Chagan that I love is that she says, we have a natural tendency to divide the world into good and bad people and mm -hmm. to think of ourselves as good people. And she says kind of counterintuitively, don't think of yourself as a good person. And so, you know, you scratch your head and you're like, why not? And then her answer is because until you make a mistake, you'll be complacent, so you won't be working hard enough. And then when you make a mistake, you'll kind of spiral, and you'll say, oh, I'm such a terrible person. You'll sit in your office and kind of berate yourself and say, how could I have done that just in exactly the way that you described? Other mm. people can do this. Why can't I do this? And she says that kind of shame spiral is ultimately not a gift to anyone. It's not a gift to you, and it's not a gift to the trans people in your lives, right? Because they don't want you to feel shame. They just want you to get better at mm -hmm. it, right? So she says, instead of thinking about good versus bad people, think of us all as good-ish people who are all on this journey together, uh, who are all going to make mistakes. So that that gives us a kind of running room to be able to make the mistakes and to you know find the forgiveness right for those mistakes that actually allows us to get better. I think the one thing that we often get wrong, both with regard to ourselves and to others, is that we think that you know, we need to be really hard on ourselves and on other people because otherwise there won't be any accountability. So I think the impulse to be hard on ourselves and other people actually comes from a really decent place of like there hasn't been enough accountability in issues of social justice and so, uh, and particularly in diversity and inclusion. And so we're really going to drop the hammer on ourselves and others from this point. But everything we know about growth mindset, and I would include Carol Dweck's research on this, 
teaches us that, you know, self-forgiveness, forgiveness of others and accountability are not sort of horses running in different directions. Uh, self-forgiveness is actually the pathway to accountability because that capacity to forgive yourself is the capacity for growth mindset and growth mindset is the way we get we improve and improvement is what leads to that accountability. Well, and I think you have so perfectly summed up why it is so many folks go into a DEI training and people sit there and don't say a word, right? Because I think the idea there being that if you remain in silence, you can convince yourself that you're a, still a good person. You're not going to put yourself out there. You're going to remain in the good camp versus thinking of yourself as good-ish, but maybe having a growing edge. I think that's right. And I also think if that weren't, you know, bad enough, bad in the sense of like, you know, we don't really learn when we opt out in that way. But it's also like increasingly, my sense is that that silence is not the safe harbor that people think it is. Hmm. So that when people just go into that training and they remain silent, I think that people around them no longer interpret that silence as neutrality, they interpret it as complicity in an unjust status quo, huh. right? So they're like, you're not participating and that means that you think that you can opt out of this project. And so uh, it's not like negative judgments are uh, gonna be avoided, right? Simply because you keep your mouth shut, right? So what's the answer if you're terrified of talking, uh, but you're also scared of remaining silent? I think the answer is to create a culture, right? Uh, in the organization that says, you're allowed to make those mistakes. Those mistakes are critical to your learning and growth. So we welcome those mistakes. And this is a psychologically safe environment in which you know even dominant group members can make those mistakes. I mean, how ridiculous would it be, Jonathan, if I said to you, I'm going to teach you constitutional law this semester and we're all going to have a lot of fun. Uh, and I only have one requirement, which is that not a single one of you is allowed to make a single mistake for the entire semester. Right? Mm. That would be like a downright hostile learning environment. Like you wouldn't learn anything in that environment, right? So why is it that we think that we can go into that diversity and inclusion training and say, you know, I, you know, we're going to learn a lot, we're going to have fun, but you know, the one thing that I ask of you is that you not say anything inappropriate or ask a question that seems off or. Uh, what have you, right? And if you do that, we'll judge you and cancel you. Right? That can't be the way, you know, all of learning theory tells us that this is not the way in which people improve. So where do you hope these tools and these conversations will take us in the next, you know, five to 10 years? And wh where would you like to see this this train heading? I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah, I kind of, you know, end where we began, I suppose, you know, Jonathan, because I began by saying, you know, as the affected person who needed allies when I was a young, you know, gay man 30 years ago coming out of the closet, I still remember every single conversation, particularly the ones that went well, frankly, where people really sort of surprised me and embraced me and uh, handled it with, you know, sensitivity and tact and, um, and kindness uh, and compassion, right? So now that I, again, find myself more on the other side of wanting to be the ally to the affected person rather than being the affected person, um, I find myself thinking like, I want to be, my role models are the good people that I came out to who were able to have kind of resilience and curiosity and compassion for me. So what I would love to see is a culture around that, uh, that says, you know, these conversations can be critically important such that 30 years later, people are going to remember them when you conduct them well. So instead of viewing them as like a field of fear, I want people to view these conversations as a field of possibility where they can really distinguish themselves. And it's a learnable skill. You know, this is not, you know, the kind of you either have it or you don't kind of fixed mindset, you know, domain where uh, you either are a sensitive person or you're not. You know, these seven principles in the book should guide you well on your way to being able to have these conversations. And I really hope that people can create a culture. And sometimes, you know, in this climate, this may sound like a Pollyanna-ish thing to say, but to create a climate of kind of human flourishing where people can really understand that uh, we need to be good listeners, right? And to hear the stories that people have to tell us. Uh, and that kind of conversation ennobles both parties, right? And so that's really where I hope we're headed in the next five to 10 years. And I, I don't know if you've looked at this or thought about it, but, you know, we like to think that, that progress can continue on somewhat of a linear path. But when you look at younger folks, 
that we think of, I think, at least we project on them as being the most multicultural and most open to conversations about gender and identity. I mean, do you have faith that, say, that 60% you were talking about earlier, kind of the, the, the bulk of people will be heading in a direction in which progress will continue? This will be less of, you know, uh, an issue or a series of conversations that feel so sticky in 20 to 40 years from now? I do, yeah, and I, I realize that may seem like a strange thing to say because I think that as diversity and inclusion discourse has, you know, proceeded, you know, it seems like the backlash against DNI is is very very strong as well. But you know, this is a quote that's often misattributed to Gandhi. I believe it was a labor organizer who said it. But uh, the quote is, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then we win. Mm. Right? And I think that that's really the movement that I see in diversity and inclusion, where uh, I definitely am not one of these people who think that the world only spins forward. But in this particular domain, I think that initially people just ignored diversity and inclusion, then they kind of ridiculed it. And now the fact that people are kind of fighting it tooth and nail, including in the law with legislation, right, uh, enacted to shut down diversity and inclusion initiatives or critical race theory discourse or what have you, right, uh, that they really think of it as a fight that needs to be had. And that's uh, doesn't mean that DNI has failed. It means that diversity and inclusion as a movement is succeeding, right? So, you know, I'm not saying this will happen without a lot of hard work or without people pulling together on this, but you know, I do think that you know this is a phase before, right? And the best of of senses, the the DNI movement prevails. And the thing that makes me most hopeful about you know our chances here uh, is allyship. So Matt Iglesias, a uh, political writer, calls this a great awakening. And I know that woke has been sort of used in pejorative ways, but I don't mean it in that way. And I don't think he does either. What he means about the great awakening is that we see a lot of allies, like even in the past five to 10 years, um, it's been surprising, right? How many white people have gone to Black Lives Matter rallies mm -hmm. or how many men have gone to the Women's March on Washington or how many straight or cisgender individuals have stood up for the LGBTQ plus community, how many able-bodied people have actually taken up, you know, disability issues, right? So I think that's what's changed in my lifetime on diversity inclusion discourse is that, you know, allies are coming in at kind of unprecedented numbers and everyone understands that we need uh, allies to succeed and that, you know, we need to be allies for others to uh, succeed. And so that great awakening is what uh, gives me hope that, you know, this trajectory is going to be a positive one. I'm definitely not the kind of Whiggish, you know, progress always only happens in one direction kind of guy. Mm. But in this particular domain, I'm cautiously optimistic. My guest has been Kenji Yoshino, Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University. He's also the co-author with fellow NYU professor David Glasgow of Say the Right Thing. Uh, Kenji, thanks so much for joining us. This has been, I think, a really important conversation. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody, and we're just 15 members away from getting to 1,000 members on our Life Examine Facebook group, and we would love your support. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.